Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and it's Dino Week here on your favourite horror podcast. That's right, horror and dinosaurs, two of the great pillars of my imagination, and Luke Dumas brings them both together in his new novel, The Paleontologist. It's the story of a very haunted man, a very creepy museum, and the goddamn ghost dinosaur that's roaming the place. It's come out to much fanfare and anticipation, and I believe it's been selected as the Barnes & Noble Mystery Thriller Monthly Pick for November and December, whatever that means. What it seems to mean is that other people are on board with the very simple fact, ghost dinosaurs can't lose. <laughs> as excited as I clearly am about the concept, Luke and I don't just talk dinosaurs. We cover other things, like the balancing of horror and humour, how paleontology is kind of detective work. We inquire how wide and how far back in time a reader's empathy can go, and we discuss the always complicated nature of privilege. Now, if you like what you hear, there's always more. You can sign up for Patreon to get tons of extra episodes, exclusive interviews, and my full-blooded goodwill. Just follow the link in the show notes, or go via the website at TalkingScaredPod.com. There's a support button. Hit that. It'll take you straight to Patreon. Oh, and if you fancy being a very kind soul, drop a review on your podcast app of choice. But now, come with me 65 million years back in time to a world of fire and ferocity and meet the things that will haunt the millennia to come. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Luke, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, yeah. Quite excited to have you on the show because it's been quite a few weeks of returning guests. And as much as I love them, it's nice of a new writer. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm glad because we get to talk about something that I don't think I've covered on this show since all the way back in episode two of this podcast, which is dinosaurs in horror. Yes, it's dinosaur week here on Talking Scared, and, and I am thrilled. <laughs> hey, that's my kind of week. I love dinosaurs, so I am ready to, to chat dinos with you. John Langan was the last person that I talked dinosaurs with. He had a, a short story about a, a kind of ghost dinosaur in his Children of the Fang anthology, but I haven't mentioned a single dino since, so this is, this is going to be fun. Um, your new novel, your, your second novel, is called The Paleontologist, and the synopsis does indeed promise ghost dinosaurs. So I was salivating at the prospect, because if you don't get excited at the word ghost dinosaurs, quite frankly, I think you need to have a word with yourself. But when I actually read it, it turns out it's about quite a bit more than that. But I promise people, there are ghost dinosaurs. Um, can you introduce us to your book, Luke? Yeah, so The Paleontologist is a supernatural suspense and horror novel, um, and it follows the story of Dr. Simon Neely. He is a paleontologist who has returned to his hometown in Pennsylvania after being away for decades uh, he has accepted a position at the Hawthorne Museum of Natural History. This is a sort of crumbling, gothic, smaller museum um, where he has some history. He, When he was a kid, he went there with his younger sister, Morgan. 
Um, they were, you know, she was only six and she vanished while they were visiting the museum and he was meant to be watching her. And he's carried the guilt of this disappearance, which has gone unsolved um, for years and years. And he has come back at this time in his life. It's the pandemic is going on. He's experienced some loss in his life and he feels himself being called back to the museum to try to find out what happened to her, solve that mystery. Um, but while he's there, he starts to experience strange things that he can't quite explain, um, you know, sounds, animal sounds that don't make any sense to him, bloody animal footprints on the floor that really couldn't belong to any living creature. Um, he starts to suspect that the museum is haunted by prehistoric spirits. What an idea. Um, obvious first question. Were you a dinosaur kid, Luke? Oh my God, yes. I'm still a dinosaur kid. Um, <laughs> but I, I I, mean, I just, I was obsessed with them. Like even when ever, everyone or many of us go through a dinosaur phase and, but I didn't outgrow it. Like when everyone else like, okay, that's, we're done with dinosaurs. I was still on that bandwagon. But um, yeah, I just, I've always loved them. I just remember spending hours and hours like pouring through these um, illustrated guides to dinosaurs and watching Jurassic Park and The Land Before Time. Um, just uh, walking with dinosaurs too, the B the original BBC show um, narrated by Kenneth Branagh. Like I just was obsessed. So we've established early that we had basically the, the same first 10 years of our life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had all the books, the big, the coffee table books. I had board games. I had, I had a million little plastic toys. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the the, um, the land that, is it the land that time forgot? Yeah, the the 74 adaptation. Oh, no, you said the land before time, the cartoon, right? Yes, yes. My obsession was the land that time forgot, which was this hokey sort of Harryhausen style stop motion thing about some people in the Second World War who go on a in a submarine and find this prehistoric landscape. And, oh, I, I loved it so much. But the, my big thing that that led to was reading Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, which you reference in the sort of epigram to your novel. Are you a fan of that book? I am a fan of that book. I um, came to it later in life when I was an adult, sort of seeking more dinosaur, you know, like dinosaur fiction for adults, um, mm. And I do, I really, I really do enjoy that. And I got to return to it a little, you know, while I was writing this book, sort of seeking something for the front of the book. And it, it is wonderful. It is a wonderful book. I, I got lucky when I found that book. I, it was almost like quite a magical thing. I found this book in this tiny secondhand bookstore my dad took me to. I'd have been about 12 or something. And I remember, I don't, I don't know what edition of that book it was, because when, when you're reading the, the the lost world it's you know there's lots of like scrap it's like a scrapbook lots of like hand, hand-drawn maps and things like that right and this edition i had was presented like it was professor challenger's own handbook and it felt like i'd found this thing from the heart of the adventure oh my i love that book i don't know where it is anymore what i'd give to find that book that i owned i loved it so much if you find an extra copy you need to tell me because yeah. i need that i think i read the free version that they put online but i, yeah. I would love to have that copy and then I assume that you sat with just like me, looking on in slap jawed wonder when we first see the uh, the, the Dip Diplodocus in 
in in Jurassic Park. It's a Brachiosaurus. But, is it a bra- um, There you go. Yeah. This is why I've got you on. The, this is why you're on the show, Luke. I was thinking Brontosaurus, Brachiosaur, Diplodocus. It's a Brachiosaur. But yeah, were you just like, oh my god, like the rest of us were? Absolutely. I mean, I that movie came out when I was three, so I don't have a, like a clear memory of seeing it for the first time. I just have a very clear memory of sitting in front of the TV because it was like you know '90s, maybe mid '90s, the box like square TV and watching the VHS and just like every single time I watched it, it was just so mesmerizing and Mm. just like, it really awakened my imagination. Like, you know, the, the scene where they're the helicopter is heading towards the Island for the first time. And the music sort of swells. I just remember being like, Oh my God. Like just imagining all the dinosaurs that are not being shown in in the trees and under the water. And like, you know, I didn't quite understand the concept at the age of four or five, but I still feel that way when I watch it, it's just so inspiring and, and, to me, that's what dinosaurs are. Like, that's why I love them so much, I think. It's a real escapist fantasy for me. Um, and the way that, like, for a lot of us, maybe it's, like, magic or sorcery or dragons, like, or sci-fi, these sort of big escapist uh, fantasy worlds that we can disappear into, especially when we're younger or when life is not going the way we want it to or there's sadness or darkness. And for me, the prehistoric world was always that. Um sort of a world apart from our own, filled with these amazing, fantastic creatures and like bizarre landscapes and just a way to to escape um, the, the darkness and sadness of our own realities. It's so true and, and probably needed now more than ever. But when you said that, just then about your thinking about all the dinosaurs that you can't see, um, that is exactly the feeling that I get. It's like it's like the mystery that is inherent in those creatures. You know that that yeah, you can see this thing, but what else do we not know that's lost to the recesses of deep time and and what's in the water and what's like they're like wondrous monsters that somehow we know existed, and that just makes them the weird liminal space right between reality and fiction. It, it's it, they they even even now when I think about them, I feel my imagination just expand and start to flow i just love it so much absolutely yeah i still i still escape into these fantasies and like writing this book was kind of the perfect expression of that Mm -hmm. because i used to want to be a paleontologist or when i was very young i thought i want to grow up and be a paleontologist but i realized as i got a little bit older that actually paleontology is not what i wanted to do at all because that's a study of science of geological science and rocks and that was not for me i'm not a scientist really and i studied literature and writing like but you know what i loved was the escape what i loved was the fantasy of dinosaurs and Uh the idea of escaping into that world and so being able to write this book about paleontology something i'm interested in but not able to actually study and be able to create my own world in which dinosaurs have come back to life it was like my child. It was like a very dark version of my childhood dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let, let's get to the book then. Sure. Because I could talk dinosaurs just generally all night, but that wouldn't be the best use of your time. When did you first think, you know, I could write a dinosaur novel? Because they're not like, like you mentioned before about dinosaur novels for adults. There aren't that many. And they all kind of get lost under the critical mass of Jurassic Park. 
So when did it first occur to you that I could just do this? I mean, for years and years, I thought I couldn't, but I wanted to. Um, because, I mean, there hasn't really been a major dinosaur novel for adults mm. since the sequel to Jurassic Park. And that was 1995. I mean, you've had like a couple here and there that made like, you know, Tyrannosaur Canyon in 2006, like they're just like little things here and there. But I was always craving more fiction for adults that focused on dinosaurs that brought them back to life. But, you know, that weren't super hokey. And like, you see some of these narratives like on the fringes of sci-fi. But for me, I wanted something more like Jurassic Park that was just a little bit more elevated. And I, I, I just thought, I mean, for years, I was like, I would love to do this, but there's no way I can improve upon Michael Crichton and what he did. And I don't want to repeat what he did. I mean, I think that the conceit of bringing dinosaurs back by extracting their DNA from ancient mosquitoes, like, that's so brilliant. Like, I could never think of something cooler than that, um, that actually feels like it, it in some weird way could really happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I sat with this for years, like, I would love to do this, but I don't know how to do it in a way that feels good enough to me. And then finally, I read a book called The Resurrectionist. It's about like sort of a mad scientist. It's very Victorian in style. Um, I think it's E.B. Hudspeth is the author. He's like a mad scientist and he draws these incredible illustrations of like mythological creatures. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, a, again, a coffee table book, right? It's got skeletal diagrams. And I remember I, I can picture this book. Yes. Yes. I think I've seen it in a weird, weird occult bookshop one time. Yeah. I... I <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. I've just I've placed it now. Yeah, it, I, I found it so inspiring. Like, I just loved, I mean, a lot of the, the illustrations were like, you know, skeletons of mermaids and centaurs and things like that. But I was really inspired by the voice of it. Um, it had a very Victorian, old-fashioned style, but this sort of mad scientist. And I thought, God, I would love to write about a mad paleontologist. Like, what would, but what would that look like? And then that's where I sort of got the idea, like, okay, well, maybe he's seeing dinosaurs coming to life. You know, he's like working in the darkness of this old museum and he's seeing these things come to life. And then that sparked the idea for for ghosts. And once I had that, I thought, whoa, that is like actually a great idea because he's surrounded by dinosaur bones, like the, the, the remnants of these ancient creatures. Why wouldn't they come back as ghosts? You know, if we have all these stories about people coming back as spirits. Like I just, and then I was like, wow, it has this never, I hadn't seen it done. And that was exciting to me. The idea of putting a a twist on the ghost story, the old haunted house story, create a haunted museum and um, be able to explore the stories of these prehistoric creatures in the way that we love to explore the stories of human ghosts when they appear in haunted house novels. Like what happened to them? What is keeping them tethered to this location? How do they find peace or resolution? Um, I was just very excited about that. Well, and one of the things that you do so very well, you turn this into a detective novel, and there is a kind of deductive element to the story of what happened to Simon's sister. But he's equally doing detective work into the history of this, this dinosaur skeleton he has that is named Theo. And they become kind of parallel detective stories. And I thought that was very interesting how you, you 
you take one genre and then you don't just twist that into, oh, it's a detective story about dinosaurs. You also add in the ghost story as well. So there's an awful lot going on in this book. Thank you. Yeah, there is a lot going on. I think I struggled with when I was first thinking about the dinosaur ghost story. I mean, because that was the original idea. Like, how do you stretch that out to 300 pages? Like, Mm. I mean, from a plot perspective, I found that really challenging. Um, And I thought there needs to be something else going on. But as I got into it, I mean, I really, I really loved that. I loved the parallelism and really leaned into it in the way that like paleontology is sort of a detect, a sort of detective work, a scientific detective work. Um, and, and that metaphor is sort of drawn out in, in the book. But, you know, you're looking at clues. A paleontologist is looking at bones and fossils and trying to deduct what happened to these creatures. How did they die? How did they live? Um, and it was just really good fun to be able to look at these two different stories and try to find the points where maybe they intersect or they do parallel each other um, without, you know, it was also very challenging to try to find connections that feel natural and organic between, you know, and a Jurassic theropod dinosaur and a six-year-old girl who's gone missing in a museum. But that was sort of the the joy of it. I think I've been quite clear that I, I loved it. <laughs> but what I will say, and I hope you go, go with me on this, because <laughs> the idea on paper is incredibly kooky, right? It, as an <laughs> elevator pitch, it, it sounds almost like a sort of tongue-in-cheek idea. And you said you didn't want it to be hokey or hack, and, it, and it's certainly not. Because, as we discussed at the start, it isn't that at all. It's not a tongue-in-cheek idea. But was it hard to convey the seriousness when you were pitching the book? Was it a hard sell? I mean, it was a hard sell to myself at first, honestly. (laughs) Like, I did think it was hokey. And that was probably the thing that worried me about it to begin with. I was very excited about it. Um, But... I did, you know, it definitely is a out there idea. And I thought, is my editor going to laugh at this? Um, but once I started to really, you know, like get down the plot description where I'm like writing in the first stages, like a, maybe like a one page, just overall plot description um, and starting to realize that, okay, this is a detective story. This is about you know, a missing sister and a brother who is trying to find out what happened. To me, there was a commercial element in that that felt like something that you would see in a more traditional mystery detective story. Um, And I think that element did help temper the kookiness of the dinosaur ghosts. (laughs) Um, I didn't know then that it would be such an emotional book. And like, I thought it would just be kind of have these two elements, the ghost, the detective story, but there's a lot of um, pathos. There's a lot of emotion. I really ended up digging pretty deep into Simon's psychology and his trauma, which is something I really enjoy doing. Um, And I think it, it works well, but I was surprised by the tone. Like it did come out a little bit, as you, you've pointed out before, like a little bit sadder or more empathetic and at other parts still very like over the top kooky, but 
um, yeah, that was a surprise. And I'm really grateful that my publisher sort of went along for the ride with that. Well, you mentioned in, in your answer that it's quite a commercial piece of fiction. Um, and I applaud that massively. I would like a bit more commercial, well-written horror fiction because I, you know, I, it's great that everyone is stretching for ways to marry genre and the supposed literary and all of that stuff. But what I love is when someone puts character and and story because story is different than plot, isn't it? You know, plots are kind of machine, whereas story is the whole the whole feast, right? And I and I I love when a writer puts character and story first, sort of without pretension, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Um, and I'm I'm trying to ensure that I, that I don't sound like I'm saying your book is dumbed down because it's certainly not at all. But it it has that commercial feel, um, which I hope is returning to horror a little bit, you know? Yeah, I hope so too. I I really am interested in like that sweet spot between literary and commercial. I'm proud of this book. Like I I do think that it it is it's commercial because it's fun and it has dinosaurs in it, right? And they're like (laughs) chasing people around trying to eat them. Um, But I think there's another there are other elements of it that that do feel, um, I guess, what my publisher would call upmarket or literary, whatever weird words they use to describe it. But um, it's, yeah, the tone is sort of different than than I've read elsewhere, and I, I like that. Well, let's talk about tone, because I, I think, you know, much of the book is, as you've described it, fun horror. Um, and I thought you could make really easy comparisons, first and foremost, somebody like Grady Hendrix, for example, who I think is is nailing what we kind of think of as commercial horror. But I think you refrain from sliding as close to pastiche as Grady does. There, there is a sense of real authentic loss as the, the engine of the paleontologist, you know, like you've got all of this bells and whistles of the haunting and, and and the murders and stuff like that. But at the heart of it are numerous different people who've experienced a quite profound loss. Was it a challenge to marry that emotional tomba with, you know, for want of a better word, a B-movie premise? Well, I didn't find it challenging because it wasn't necessarily intentional to begin with. It wasn't part of what I set out to do. Um, it came naturally as I started writing Simon. I just, I found that he had so much more to give than I realized emotionally. And you mentioned, you know, the connections between other characters, sort of some of these side characters. For example, there's, there's a philanthropist, a major donor at the zoo who has experienced her own loss. Um, There are different people that he meets and, and a lot of them do have some sort of connection to the supernatural, you know, some element of clairvoyance or being able mm-hmm. to see things like he does. And I really didn't, I mean, that that was really special to discover that Simon had connections with these people um, emotionally because and the, the supernatural for each of them is sort of linked in some way to trauma or loss or death or something that um something that is is staying with them um 
sort of like the dinosaur ghosts in the museum too. They have their own sort of special stories. And I didn't find it challenging. I found it concerning at times, like, is this going to work? It just, to me, it it deepened what could have been a relatively two-dimensional story. And I just leaned into that because that's what I want to read in horror. Like, I think just because something is horrifying or scary, it doesn't it doesn't need to be two-dimensional. It can have greater depth. Yeah, I think a lot of people picking this book up will be quite surprised by the, the depth and the time you give to like emotional states because, you know, we've made comparisons to Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is a, is a pot boiler. It's a very well-written pot boiler, but it's a big sci-fi kind of epic, very much of its time, right? And this is much more than that. This, this, you really do take the time to tease out some pretty, pretty extreme emotional states, and I, and I do feel like you have throughout a real, particular fondness for your protagonist Simon. I don't know what I'm basing this on. You may say no, not at all, Neil. But I read a lot of protagonists, and I speak to a lot of authors, and it throughout this, I felt like you, in particular, had a strong bond with Simon. Oh, I definitely had a very strong bond with Simon. Simon is not me, but he has a lot of elements of me. I really wanted to create a main character that, I mean, like in Jurassic Park or the Jurassic World movies, you know, we're looking at Chris Pratt, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't want a Chris Pratt kind of character (laughs) because honestly, it didn't feel authentic to what I know to be a paleontologist or a scientist. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, I some... personally think we could do without Chris Pratt most of the time, <laughs> but but I, mean, I may be alone in that. He's my least favorite of the famous Chris's, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, I, I, I wanted him to be a little bit nerdy, you know, not be like a strapping six foot tall, handsome guy that, that you see in some of these more commercial takes on thrillers or whatever, what have you. But he, you know, he also was very sensitive and he did experience a lot of trauma. And, you know, there, there are, there are elements of, of my own life that gave me a lot to work with in terms of like pouring that emotion into Simon and making it feel real, especially when developing a main character. I'm often looking for the connections between my own history and their history, because I do want to bring a level of emotional authenticity if it is going to be an emotional book and there was certainly plenty for me to to work with there and uh i i love simon i think he endears me a lot and i hope readers find him endearing as well well endearing is very much the word you know we, we keep returning to the idea of fun one of my favorite things in this book in the narrative voice even though it's kind of third person omniscient you get a sense of simon very much and i love his pedant actually is it third person omniscient or is it first person no it's third person oh i thought i was confused and right i am correct um but that's that case in point it kind of felt first person in some ways but i love his pedantry like you say he's a nerd he's such a pedant and i love how he uses and kind of basically, I'm saying how you use, but you know how he uses these obscure dinosaur metaphors to describe things, like really elaborate dinosaur metaphors. He says something is like, and then he'll give like some really like long technical sentence about why it's like the way that a triceratops eats or something like that. Um, that made me smile throughout. And there's 
there's one moment quite far into the book. It's a kind of throwaway little thing, but it oh, it's basically when Simon is urgently trying to get some information from a, a random family. And, and this family's got a toddler who's playing with a plastic dinosaur and he calls it a T-Rex. And then, and then you write, Simon was just correcting this assumption when the mother returned. <laughs> and I, ju- I just love the idea that he is, he's, he's basically lecturing like a three-year-old about how it's not a T-Rex, actually. It's an Allosaurus or something. It's such a tiny detail, but it says so much about his character. Yes, it, it totally is pedantry, but he, he gets away with it, doesn't he? Like, he's so endearing, and it comes from such a passionate place and place of wanting to teach people this paleontology, yeah. which he's so, he's so in love with and just wanting to share that. So I think he gets away with it without coming off as being a jerk, which I definitely would. And I'm, I could be a pedant too, um, so, <laughs> but he does it much better than I do. No, he spoke to me because I'm the kind of person who gets really annoyed when people use the wrong word. Even though I do it myself all the time, I don't, mm. I don't spot that. But when other people do it, I get really... I'm not a grammar Nazi, but I will tell people when a word doesn't mean what they think it means. And I must come across like a right dick, but it matters to <laughs> me. You know, language is, um, is my dinosaurs. It, it matters to me. No, I was very endeared to Simon. Um, and I think, weirdly, kind of endeared to you because I was... I, I couldn't help but see him as, as as your avatar on the page. Like I say, that that sense of that <laughs> bond. I probably could, that that may not what, what you want to hear, but I couldn't separate you from your character for once. Yeah, it's funny because when I read fiction, it's really hard for me to not see the author in like whatever I know about that author, even the picture, mm-hmm. the author photo. I, I it's instinctive that like. I just read the characters them and I really have to like force myself to pull them apart. But when I'm writing like, no, poor Simon isn't me. I don't see him as me at all. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do that too. When I'm, when I'm reading. Mm. I read in another interview that you did for your previous book, you, you said that for years and years, you thought of yourself as a funny writer, that you actually wrote a few comedies before you turned to horror. Mm. Do you think humour still has a big part to play in your writing? Because I think it certainly, as we've said, raises its head in The Paleontologist. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think The Paleontologist is a lot funnier than A History of Fear was. Mm -hmm. Um, Intentionally, I mean, in parts of it, The Paleontologist can read like satire, you know, specifically focused on the nonprofit industry or sector, which I have worked in for more than a decade. Um, and I really, I mean, you just meet so many characters in that, in that sector. You're working with donors, you're working with leadership, big personalities. And um, I just, I really loved being able to explore the funny side of it. Um, and I think it, you know, I think comedy works alongside horror. It's a, it's a great way to break up the tension. Um, it's a great way to reset and I, I definitely see it as being part of my, um, it's part of my DNA as a writer. I think there will always be a little bit of tongue in cheek or, or wit in, in what I write. At least I hope so. Do you have to dampen it down ever, the urge to joke? Because again, back to that tonality thing where you are shifting in this book from one kind of style or one, or one tone to another. Do, do you have to think, no, no, this is not the place for a joke. I mean, I think it comes naturally 
in the sense that like when I'm in the middle of a very tense, horrific scene, I'm not necessarily like compelled to throw in a, a you know, a joke. Um, I really think about it in terms of tension and release. And so often it's like, you'll have the, the more intense sequence, maybe with a scary dinosaur or a ghost of apparition that's appearing. And then the next scene, he'll be, you know, at work, it'll be quite mundane. And he's in a work meeting with the senior staff on Zoom because it's the pandemic and his Wi-Fi is not working or like people are just, you know, their own, their personalities are showing through in a really funny way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily know. I, 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 I just, yeah, anyway, I can't answer this question. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is a fine balance though. I mean, you need to watch it, but I... I find that it, it all just, like, at least for me, it kind of slots itself into the right places naturally. And um, and it just gives you, a, um, yeah, it gives you a break from the horror once in a while. Yeah. I think that can that can be nice. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned your first book there, A History of Fear. And full disclosure, I've yet to finish it because I was I was trying to read them both for this episode. And then it, I realized I have to read three books for the next episode. I was like, oh, my God, I'm up against it. But I've started it, and I'm, I'm quite a way into it. And it strikes me, from what I've read so far, as a much, much more sober book than The Paleontologist. Um, in, in part, it's almost cold in comparison to this next book. Did anything specific prompt that tonal gear change? Um, for me, I mean, a history of fear is, you know, it's set in modern or contemporary Edinburgh. And like, I was just so inspired by obviously the setting. I I did my graduate degree at the University of Edinburgh. So I got to live there for a couple of years and it's it's an incredible city, Uh, but also very inspired, particularly by sort of Gothic or Victorian Scottish authors such as Robert Louis Stevenson and James Hogg in particular, Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. It's one of my favorite books. And they have quite a quite a sober tone. Um, you know, it it was, you know, History of Fear is a story in a lot of ways about religious trauma. Like that's not something that's funny to me <laughs> that's not something where I, I you know Grayson is I do find that character funny in the sense that like he's very sharp-tongued and cutting you know sort of under his breath but yeah it is a more sober it's it's a more sober subject I think the heart of the paleontologist or the the core of it was wanting to bring people back to the nostalgia and the fun that they felt while reading Jurassic Park or watching those movies. And so it has a very fun core. Um, I love a history of fear. I don't think it, I wouldn't call the core of it fun. No, no. <laughs> um, I would call the core of it, uh, you know, traumatic and, and frightening. Well, I mean, we won't dwell on it too much because we're talking about your new book, but sure. it's for those who don't know, it's about a murder case in which someone blames the devil for making them do it. And, our hero suffers from a condition called satanophobia, which is this kind of pursuant dread that he's being chased by the devil. 
And as someone who's utterly terrified of possession movies, despite not believing in the devil, I've got to ask, where did you get that idea from? It is a real thing. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember reading about it years ago on some sort of like f- like weird web forum. You know, like I just I, I just remember really latching on to that idea. Yeah. I'm very interested in the devil as a literary figure. I also don't believe in the devil. I'm not particularly scared of the devil. Um, but I always, I just loved books that, that used the devil and especially in sort of the, the Scottish, you know, demonic fiction style where it's not so much about being possessed by the devil and having, you know, priests throw holy water on you. It's more like the devil is always there and he, the devil represents the darkness in one's own mm. self and their own fear of their own evil. Um, and so, yeah, when I, when I learned about satanophobia, I thought, oh, wow, like that is just an incredibly interesting and um, potentially terrifying way to explore um, the demonic that feels a little bit less tropey or a little bit fresher than um, possession narratives, which I still enjoy. You know, I love them, but mm. I was just really excited to to find a different way into that. Well, I look forward to finding time to finish the book because I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, it's, it is it's it's a scarier book, I would say, but as you say, it's not it's not as fun. So they make quite quite a nice yin and yang to read alongside one another. One thing I want to talk about to come back to the paleontologist um, is that you mentioned in a few questions ago about the not profit. Uh, the non-profit sector that you worked in and which is kind of laid bare and excoriated in the paleontologist. Um, first of all, are you just basically bringing your scars from, from years of working in that world to this book? Is it your way of having your say? It is. Um, it was one of the things that I really loved about writing it. And which was a surprise. You'd think it would be the dinosaur stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I really felt like this was an opportunity because, um, you know, 10% of the U.S. population is employed by a nonprofit organization, but you hardly ever see them represented accurately in fiction. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you like dark, ac- dark, you see dark academia, right? But or might be said at a university or a library, but it's a very heightened reality of those places. Or oftentimes if you, if a nonprofit or a charity is ever mentioned, I find that it's more often as like characterization for a certain type of character. So-and-so works at the local dog shelter and she's a saint. Like it tells you something about what they do and that they're selfless and um, there are so many books about workplace culture, but they're all set in the corporate world. And this was kind of a fun opportunity to explore and shine a light on the nonprofit world in a way that felt authentic. And I will say, like, I mean, I really highlight in this book sort of the, the ne- some of the negative aspects, you know, um, some of the dysfunction that I think anyone working in the nonprofit world will I will relate to or the lack of resources. And, Mm. um, but I do actually think nonprofits are extremely valuable and contribute a lot to society. And I love working 
in the nonprofit sector, in the philanthropy sector in particular. So I, I don't want anyone to come away from this book thinking that they should not support nonprofits or that they're inherently bad. But just like with corporations, there, there are many out there that are dysfunctional um, and you do find bad leadership. And I just think, I just wanted to create a greater level of transparency about what actually goes into it and, and what it's like. I really, I really love those, those elements of the book. I mean, one of my favorite characters is Fran Boney. She is a, yeah. a director of <laughs> development at the museum and development is nonprofit jargon for fundraising. Um, and she's just this incredibly brash, outspoken, uh, fundraiser who kind of is like a rich person's worst nightmare of a fundraiser, like very much trying to get their money, but she also has a heart of gold. And, you know, as you learn more about her, you you learn that her heart's in the right place. And I think that's Mm -hmm. true of a lot of, um, a lot of people who work in the nonprofit sector. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they really care about a cause and the mission of the organization. And so I hope that, that that is in there as well. Very much. And I was, this isn't a spoiler to say, I was very glad with some of the clarity you gave to Fran's character later in the book. It's a development that I enjoyed very much. Um, it's what I was hoping would happen rather than the opposite. You know, I didn't, I didn't want a bit to, I didn't want her to become worse. I wanted her to become better. And I, I enjoyed <laughs> that a lot. Um, but there's one line that I highlighted when I was reading the book right away, because it, it rang me like a bell. Because I used to work for a charity in Manchester, um, working with people with disabilities. And so I saw firsthand, like, you know, the, the, the worst side of the city. I used to work for the probation service as well. So I, I've seen parts of my home city that really do put a different pall on what you think of modern cities. Um, and there's there's one line that hit me right to the heart, and it, it's this: it's Simon has a certain interaction with somebody, and you write that Simon quote understood what it was like to live so long without the merest provision of dignity or hope that he would stop missing them. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow, because in many ways, beyond the ghosts and all of the paraphernalia, this book is about privilege and, and inequality, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It, it is for Simon. And Simon's a really interesting character to explore that. Mm. Um, you know, going back to the ways in which Simon is kind of like me, Simon is not tradition. like he wouldn't have thought of himself as traditionally privileged. He is gay. Um, he, he grew up in poverty. I did not. I grew up middle class, but he grew up with really no privilege in his life. I mean, he had, he was the child of a drug addicted single mother who was, um, you know, just living in poverty, not able to take care of them. And so he really um, had to pull himself up by his bootstraps to use that, that old chestnut. And so he doesn't really see himself as privileged, but he is going into an environment this, this museum environment where just being a white man does give him a certain level of, of privilege and he finds himself surrounded by really hardworking women um, and minorities that are doing great work, but they're completely 
unrecognized or underpaid. And that's something that, unfortunately, I have seen a lot of in the nonprofit sector. Um, And it's something that I wanted to explore the ways in which the, the ways in which privilege exists in a sector that is not traditionally think of thought of as privileged and the ways in which privilege can come into the lives of people who don't nece- who wouldn't necessarily see themselves as privileged yes and the contempt that the very privileged have for the very people they're supposed to be working on behalf of in your book at least i'm not talking about reality you know but there are some really awful people at the top of this tree in this museum um and yeah i I just thought that entire sort of internal conversation of the book was interesting because I'll, i'll be honest with you luke um when i first started reading the book and very early on simon has this very brief sort of self reflection about privilege despite the fact that i spend all my time like screaming you know, intentionally progressive things on this podcast. My reaction was when I read that first instance was to sort of groan and think, oh no, I hope this book isn't going to really make itself a soapbox for something. I didn't, I didn't want it to be like a, a crowbarred in political message. But then as I carried on reading, it becomes clear that that the idea of privilege and the, the interrogation of privilege is really thematically at, at the heart of the book. Because like you said, Simon lives in this strange hinterland. He's, he comes from poverty, he's gay, he's physically small, which can be another chink in, in one's armour, you know, these mm-hmm. days. Um, and I was pleased to see that it became like thematically part of the story, you know. And there's a whole, there's a brilliant bit where he has a kind of showdown with Fran and Fran makes him realize that actually you do have some inherent privilege that I will never have. And then there's a, a bit in the next passage where he's like, he kind of goes like, yeah, I thought about that. But after a couple of days, my anger returned and my sympathy for Fran and and, and women in the workplace kind of re- retreated. And I thought it was quite, it's quite bold that you are looking to sort of muddy the waters and complicate the idea of privilege you're not going for an easy this is good that is bad sort of approach yeah i mean i think a lot of that is because i modeled simon's exploration of privilege off of my own like i wanted to be authentic about it i didn't to me it it doesn't work to just be like it's i don't know like i think that complexity that inner turmoil just feels more real and is more relatable. And I've definitely gone through or earlier in my career, like I never would have thought of myself as as privileged. I or I went to university, the University of Chicago. I was surrounded by these incredibly rich, privileged people. You know, I one of my fellow com- columnists on the school newspaper, like his dad is an extremely famous, you know, best-selling literary author. And mm. that guy got his own book deal. Um, him and his friend got their own book deal with Penguin when they were still in, um, like, in the second year of, of undergrad. And I was just so insanely jealous. And here I am, mm. like, going back home in the summer to, like, intern at the Red Cross and write grants. I mean, I just, it didn't feel like we were in the same world at all. But um, privilege exists everywhere. And when you really peel back the layers and look at yourself, I mean, 
I, I, I'm, I do, I'm, I'm in a really good place in my career and I look at other people who maybe didn't have the same opportunity to intern like I did because my mom was a grant writer at the Red Cross back in the day. And I had that connection. I mean, it's like a different level of privilege, but it's still privilege and it's still um, something I'm incredibly grateful for. And um, just something that I, I wanted to explore. But as you say, it's not all black and white for me. I think there's a lot of shades of gray to privilege um, because we're all intersectional. And so in some ways you might be privileged and in other ways you feel that you aren't. And that creates complications. And I just thought it was important to explore those complications. I think it's a really important conversation to have, like in, in a book, um, you know, put across by an endearing character who is flawed because the whole conversation around, you know, white male privilege, obviously it's real. Obviously, you've only got to look at the world, but it only really works as a conversation when you look at it on a macro level or an institutional level, which I think is why your book is such a good way to do it, because you've got like an institution to, to, to investigate it through. But, you know, if you start saying to every human being, you know, you've got this level of privilege, all they can ever think about is what they don't have. You know, I I always say that I'm broke, like support the Patreon people. <laughs> but I, I always say that I'm broke. But like I own a house. You know, I, I, I work from home. So I just work at my desk. I don't, I don't have to go out in the cold and do horrible things and stuff. So, yeah, I can I would turn and go, well, I'm not privileged. I come from working class parents and stuff. But yeah, but that, those working class parents sent me to university and here I am now. So you can only really ever map it out on a macro level. Otherwise, people get very defensive. Uh, Simon has that kind of defensiveness about his past, but then you have the the museum to sort of, as a lens for it to sort of work through as a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it was like very much my own experience, at like going into some of these. I've worked with some, a range of different organizations. Some of them have been very large and very famous and they have money and you do look around and see that, you know, there aren't many non-white faces Mm. and you really have to think about that. Like, why is that the case? And what did, you know, how did I get here? And once you start to like, think about all the things that went right for you to be there at a higher level, making a decent salary. It's like, wow. I mean, it, it, it just really shines a light on um, the ways in which privilege can affect all of us everywhere um, and not just where you think. Indeed, yeah. We've, we've done our due diligence there with the sociological aspects of this book, but let's, let's finish with Ghosts and Dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> and... We, we mentioned sadness, right? How this book has got sadness and loss and stuff like that. And one of the veins of that that I didn't expect and couldn't have expected is for Theo, the dinosaur at the center of this haunting. Because he's been dead for millions of years, but you bring him to life narratively in a way that parallels how Simon resurrects him paleontologically. They, you do kind of similar jobs in a way. And... I've sort of got to ask, how on earth did you approach investing such pathos into a creature that none of us have any real way to understand? We never met a dinosaur. Like, do you, is empathy that universal? 
Mm, I think it is. But for me, it was finding the, like you say, the connections between them, the parallels, trying to find the ways in which human emotion and experience can be applied to a dinosaur, which was a real challenge. Um, so trying to find ways to to humanize Theo that was also maybe in a way, scientifically plausible. (laughs) And I really cared about being scientifically plausible. I mean, some authors wouldn't necessarily care, and that's okay, you know. Um, I've seen all the Jurassic Park films, (laughs) but (laughs) I I wanted it to be, and um, it was tough to find those connection points. But I think there are enough of them that it works, and you do see the parallels. The scientific plausibility is really important because at a climactic moment in the novel, you give us Theo's story and you, te- you, you, you solve the mystery of what is, why he's haunting the, the museum, you know, and, and what his motivations are. Um, and you don't overly anthropomorphize because some of his behaviors, when you hear his story, are purely animalistic. They're purely selfish. They're not Disney-fied, are they? They are... He is a killing machine still, but he's one that some of you make us care about. And I think if you'd taken it too far and just Disney-fied him, it, w- it would have been laughable. When in fact, it's like, oh no, all creatures are deserving of empathy, regardless of you know what they do, because it's just nature, red in blood and claw and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to make him, him laughable or unbelievable as a character, because yeah. after all, he is a character. Um, But I really thought to one of the themes that I think came out in the writing of the book that I didn't necessarily have in my head when I started it was the idea of like broadening. We we talk about the human experience as sort of a universal experience, but this brings in dinosaurs and animals to what we call the human experience. And Mm. so I wanted to explore the ways in which it's an experience of, of life. Like there are just certain things that whether you're an, you're an animal or a dinosaur or a person, you know, we all need to eat. We all want to relieve our pain. Um, There there are universal experiences in general um, and the ways in which dinosaurs might, might have experienced that or, you know, where, where's the, where's the line between human experience and just, like an experience of being a living organism, a complex living organism on the planet Earth. I mean, it's just something mm. I, I was thinking about while writing this. Well, it's something very close to my heart because, you know, I, I talk often about my empathy for animals, sometimes outweighing my empathy for my fellow human beings, certainly <laughs> in story form. So I, I think I put a thing on Instagram this week saying that three books in a row have made me cry <laughs> and and this was the third of them uh, and none of my tears were for the human beings they, they were for <laughs> they were for the dinosaurs because right the ending of the book we'll, we'll draw to a close there but the ending is happy on a micro scale things get resolved there are answers but you leave us with this lingering sorrow about things unfinished. I'm not going to say too much, don't worry. But you make it quite clear that Simon's issues haven't magically evaporated just because he's solved his immediate problems. And then on this huge macro scale of deep time, these these chasms of time that, you know, the dinosaurs are separated from us by, 
on that scale, you make it clear there is so much torment still to be put to rest, because after all, these dinosaurs are haunting for a reason. Um, and that torment hasn't been resolved. And, and for an animal lover like me, it's quite a downbeat, heartbreaking final few pages. Can, can you talk about your thinking behind that? Why did you want to leave me adrift, Luke? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to have left you adrift. Um, honestly, I, well, first, I love unresolved narratives. I always have. I just, I think sometimes the, if you put a bow on things, it just doesn't feel real. And I mean, okay, there are a lot of elements of this book that are very fantastical, right? Like Mm. there's dinosaur ghosts, um, for starters, but I do strive for, a level of, of realism in other ways. You know, I want my characters to feel real. I want this museum to feel real. And I like resolution to feel real. And a lot of the times it is, there is a, a lack of resolution in it. And um, maybe you get some answers, but others are, even, even if they're not left open, they're emotionally unresolved. You might have your answer, but it just doesn't feel good. Um, that's life to me. And I, I'm drawn to that when I when I read and when I write. But also, I, you know, like, I really think that Simon could go on to other stories. I think having, leaving it open with, like, the unresolved trauma of the dinosaurs in the museum or uh, knowing that there's other trauma out there that is being experienced by prehistoric creatures that are maybe coming back as spirits was exciting to me that maybe Simon would be able to, to go on and continue his story and continue to seek resolution of his, of his guilt and his trauma by continuing to help um, these, these dinosaurs who are, who are out there grieving just like he is. Can we expect like book two in Simon Neary dinosaur detective then? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know yet. Um, I would certainly love to. I have other stories in mind for him. I'm not sure what the future holds for Simon, but definitely I could see this this story continuing. Um, But it remains to be seen whether that will happen. Okay, well, I would just like a museum full of happy dinosaurs. So please (laughs) get cracking. Okay. Um, Right, let's finish. We've talked about your books. Let's talk about other books. Can you recommend a title for me, Luke, that you think my listeners would enjoy? Yes. Um, I would like to recommend the novel Bed Bugs by Ben H. Winters. Um, this is a horror novel. It originally came out in 2011, uh, but it was actually republished this year in August um, under a different name, different title, The Bonus Room. But it follows um, a, a young couple with a young daughter in New York City who move into what they think is the dream apartment for them. Um, and it, it's like perfectly priced, like unbelievably priced, really. And of course, once they get in there, they start to see that things aren't exactly as great as they thought it was going to be. Um, and the main character, Susan, starts to suspect that their apartment is infested with bed bugs, and she starts to get um, bites. But her husband, Alex, is 
not experiencing those bites. Uh, and she brings in, you know, an exterminator to try to assess the apartment and they're not finding uh, the bed bugs there. And it's just like a very slow building um, sort of creep towards potential insanity around bed bugs, which to me is like such a visceral thing. I mean, like while reading this, I got so creeped out. And every time I felt like a, a bite on my ankle or something, I was just like convinced that we had bed bugs, which is not nice, but it's also just wonderfully written, um, very witty and just like the exact kind of writing that I love. The characters really leap off the page and um, I highly recommend it. Sounds great. I mean, I- I've just read Nat Cassidy's Nestlings, which also has bed bugs in it as a sign of something yeah. being wrong. And I got very, very itchy for about three days. <laughs> So a novel entirely sensed on bed bugs may ruin me. And also, I don't know if you know in the US, but are you, are you aware of the, the European bed bug infestation of 2023? No. Not. Yes. So I, I haven't quite followed the story, but basically there was a massive, massive sort of mass infection of, of bed bugs in France. And supposedly it's now spreading across the continent. And and we've we've currently got like people in the UK obsessed by finding bed bugs on the tube and stuff like that. So everyone is on high alert about bed bugs. So this couldn't be, couldn't be a more timely recommendation. Oh, good. Yeah, bed bugs are so nasty. They're so hard to get rid of. And I don't know if everyone knows. Just like, like I used to work for a senior service organization um, that had supportive housing for homeless seniors and. Bed bugs were an issue with some of the seniors coming into the residence. And oh my God, the horror stories I would hear from, you know, staff, some of the caseworkers who might have um, come into contact with them and then had to like clear out their entire wardrobe and their home. Like, yeah. it, I mean, it was horrific. So it is definitely uh, gives me the creep factor for sure. Well, my country is riven by fear of them. There was a great tweet of the day that someone someone posted a picture of saying they'd seen a, they'd found a bed bug on the the London tube, and they just tweeted, "Game over, lads. We're fucked." <laughs> <laughs> it really made me laugh. Um, but I will I will stick I will stick Ben Winters' bed bugs on the on the list because I've read his last policeman and liked it a lot. So this is that's a good recommendation. Um, apart from bed bugs luke the big question what truly scares you yeah i've thought about this question a lot and it's very personal i um so like i am a a fat person (laughs) i'll just come out and say that and like when you are a fat person in this in american society you're told a lot of things about the ways that you're destroying your health and all of the horrific things that are going to befall you and be your fault if you are fat and continue to choose to be fat in the language that they like to use. And so I do, I have experienced a lot of anxiety and fear around chronic illness, um, particularly things like diabetes and heart disease. Um, And yeah, that fear was sort of realized this year, actually. You know, I, I used to have I sort of stayed away from the doctor for years because it's never when you're like fat or obese, it's really never a good experience and pretty unsympathetic. 
Um, and you're just like constantly being told that you need to lose weight, you need to eat better, but like no resources for doing that, right? So it's mm-hmm. like very, uh, there's no real help. Um, they might be like, oh, you should eat more vegetables and lean meats. Like, awesome. Thank you. Uh, but I, you know, would I would, it just sort of like built, like I kept just experiencing this fear. Like, do I have diabetes? Like I haven't been to the doctor in four years. I really don't know. And one of the really horrible um, potential health complications from diabetes is like nerve damage in your, in your limbs and in your feet that might lead to amputation. And I, every time I, I would have like these weird pains in my foot, I'd be like, okay, that's it. I have diabetes. And so I, I decided that, you know what, like, I don't need to live with this fear. I'm just going to go to the doctor and get my blood tested and um, found out that I actually was diabetic. And it was like, so fucking horrifying. It was like, man, like, I really, I've been scared of this for years and I actually mm. did it. And, um, but also it was really good for me to know that. And I was able to like immediately change my diet and make a big impact and reduce my blood sugar dramatically within the first three months without taking any medication. I'm not on insulin. I don't have to do any of that. So ultimately it was like very good that I went in and addressed it. But, um, I, yeah, I do still, you know, you have fear. There, there's just so many, so many narratives around it. And, um, well, COVID for a start, right? You were, right. you know, that was one of the comorbidities and stuff. And it was all over the news constantly. I, I thought about that often, you know, you, you've got people trapped in their houses, they can't exercise and you're telling them that they're going to die. That's a great point. And it often is that language, like you're going to die and it's so unsympathetic and uncaring. And to me, there's this undertone of like, and you deserve it. Like you did this to yourself. You should have known better. Um, you know, sugar addiction is like something that I've str- struggled with throughout my life. The doctors will tell you that sugar is more addictive than opi- opioids. And yet, you know, if you're addicted to opioids, you might have access to some medication or other resources to help you get off them, like methadone, what have you. But there aren't resources like that for people who are sugar addicted. They're kind of left to their own devices to figure it out. Yeah, I think it's it's a real shame. And it's something that I uh, look forward to exploring in my next book. Oh, wow. Well, that is a positive outcome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to hear more about that. Well, I'm glad that you're, you know, went to the doctors and it was news that galvanized i'm glad that you are you got on top of it i'm just glad that you're well basically luke um and thanks for answering the question so personally that's very generous of you um all i'll say in return is that everyone should read your book because it's probably the most fun you can have this year reading a book that will leave you bereft (laughs) I, i i enjoyed it very very much and like i said at the start if ghost dinosaurs doesn't get you interested there's no hope for you but it's out now and you can get it and you should. And, and Luke Dumas, thank you for talking scared. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. Right. Quite a few things to talk about and mention this week. First off, great book, really eminently readable. 
just the right balance of genuine fun and audacity and emotional substance. It's a kind of ghost train B-movie ride, but dear God does it hit you deep in the feels in the final pages. Luke's basically written a blockbuster horror novel of the exact type that I just enjoy. I mean, by now, if the phrase ghost dinosaur hasn't swung you, what can I do? But if there's any doubt, this one gets the nod from me. Right at the end there, Luke mentioned that his next book will confront his fears around eating and weight and health. Well, with perfect timing, he released a publisher's marketplace update about five minutes before I started recording this outro with some details. And it turns out his next book will be called Nothing Tastes As Good, in which an obese man enters a clinical trial for miracle weight loss treatment that melts the fat of his body but transforms him into a ravenous killer with a taste for human flesh. Yummy. Yes, please. <laughs> I've got no idea when that's out. I'm guessing next year. But based on Luke's first two books, it'll be a definite read for me. Yeah, looking forward to it. But dinosaurs, don't you love them? How can you not? I think that for most of us, dinosaurs are the thing that engenders our love of monsters. And I used to have this theory, actually, that kids growing up are either car kids or dinosaur kids. Now, granted, this was based almost entirely on the boys in my class of 30 kids. So it's pretty gender essentialist and based on a sample size of about 15 individuals. But I stand by it. If you're a car kid, you like science and order, etc., Dinosaur kids love mystery and monsters and they welcome chaos. It's an entirely reductive theory, I know, but but there you go. I mean, maybe I just think that because I hate cars and can't drive, whereas I do cling to the hope that there is a living species of Brontosaurus in the Congo. <laughs> Look it up. Fascinating story. But between that and last week's diatribe about ancient aliens, I might be pushing it, though. I don't want you thinking I'm actually certifiable. Trust me, I, I just like reading about weird shit. Speaking of last week, I want to thank everyone for their outpouring of love and positivity following the conversation with Tyler Jones. If you haven't heard that episode, I beseech you to go listen because it's kind of exactly what Talking Scared is designed to do, to get to the story behind the scary story. We talk about Tyler's novel Midas and how it's inspired by his relationship with his son who has a disability. It's a lovely conversation and a good book and you've responded so kindly to both myself and Tyler. I want to say a real sincere thank you and a special thank you actually to Nina and her daughter Rue. Your message, Nina, made me beam. It was exactly the response I'd hoped for. Thanks so much for writing it and, and tell Rue hi. If anyone else wants to get in touch, ever, about anything, I don't know, favourite dinosaur, whatever, you can email the show at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on most of the social media platforms at talkscaredpod. I'm pulling back from Twitter a little because... It's a hellhole run by a plasticine C-3PO who doesn't get how humans work, but you know that. I'm still there, but with increasing reluctance. I have joined threads, which seems nice. I say all of this with reservation because social media, you know. But anyway, talk scared pod. Come find me wherever. Say hi. 
Reviews are needed and wonderful, and thanks so much if you do. Support is also needed, because freelancing, it turns out, is hard. The Patreon is a few dollars or pounds or whatever currency you choose a month, and you get a shitload of extra stuff to enjoy. If you want to and can afford it, all support is received with delight. The link is in the show notes, or again, go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Next week, I'm back with what I anticipate will be a fantastic conversation. I haven't done it yet, but I'm talking to C.S. Humble about his incredibly well-reviewed trilogy of cosmic vampire-punching westerns, The Light Sublime. I can't wait to talk to him. Until then, dig out your old dinosaur toys, re-watch Jurassic Park, check your privilege, but don't beat yourself up. Read good books, and remember... It's good to be scared.